Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm coming to you late, late on Thanksgiving night to give you the weekend warm-up podcast. Of course, the weekend warm-up podcast is where we go over all of the latest and greatest news of the week for both Bayern Munich and the German national team. And as you can probably tell, I've probably had way too much to drink today. I got to start at uh, 5 in the morning, uh, Eastern Standard Time, where I woke up. Uh, did Started to do my normal routine, which does not include drinking, believe it or not. Uh, had some coffee, ate breakfast. Headed over to uh, my buddy Twink's house. Now, Twink, you might be wondering, that is a weird name for a guy. How that name came about, and I might have explained this last year, is When he was younger, he was uh, a heavier kid, and he liked to eat Twinkies. So we called him Twink, and the name stuck. Unfortunately for him, and probably for us as well, uh, the term Twink became, uh, it it took over a different meaning as we got older. But lo and behold, we still refer to him as Twink, specifically for the old hostess Twinkies cake. So it has nothing to do with anything. Get your minds out of the gutter. Uh, anyway, we're over there. Uh, my normal routine is I, I, for a day like today, if I'm going to be, um, drinking over the long period of a day, I usually hit some Miller light, which I know you, a lot of you may turn the podcast off, but we're going over the course of something like 12 to 15 hours of drinking. You can't really load up on IPAs and that kind of thing and heavy lagers. So you got to kind of make it work. So I started with that, did a couple of Irish car bombs, which always go over well. And of course, uh, as the day progresses, get into some Crown Royal and some other uh, various shots, but drinking beer throughout the day. And eventually I have to uh, Uber myself home. Uh, But today was a little bit different, right? So we were at my buddy Twink's house and we were hanging out. And usually what we do in the routine is We'll hang out there for a while, and then we get rides up to a local bar. Well, this bar that we go to every year, apparently last year after we left, there was like a massive brawl between girls outside. Somehow I missed all this. I don't know if I was in a drunken stupor or unaware or just happened after I was out of there. So it wasn't open on Thanksgiving morning. So (laughs) I had to find a new place to go that was actually open. And if I could explain this to you, in a way you would understand, especially if you are in the United States, if you wanted to pick out the seediest bar that you could find in any movie, if they wanted to use like a really seedy bar as a setting, this was it. And uh, yeah, that's where I hung out today. Uh, my buddies, uh, Twink, <laughs> I know you guys are probably going to love that, uh, De- Pat, Bob, and we met up with uh, Marvin. You know, not Marvin who got shot in the face in Pulp Fiction, but Marvin. Marvin's a great dude. I had a great time. And uh, that's what I do basically every Thanksgiving morning. And then I come home and I have to like pull the dad act on, pretend I'm I'm not hammered, pull it all together, start drinking some coffee. And, you know, then I can start to ease back into the beers a little bit after my wife and kids think that I'm I'm not totally smashed. And then uh, we go to my my mother-in-law's for dinner with my wife's family. So I can like, you know, sip away at some beers there. Nothing too crazy. But uh, in the end, it all leads to me recording this podcast, usually late on Thanksgiving night. 
And uh, I'm usually, God, I, I don't even know a lot of beers in the hole and probably too many shots. So got some coffee with me. I've got some water with me and my voice probably sounds terrible, but I'm here to give you the show because that's what we do at BFW. And as always with this show, after that diatribe about how I spent my Thanksgiving day, we always hit the five things that we learned this week when we stay in our format and we will this week. And what we, the one thing I learned this week uh, is that I was very disappointed in Germany, but they do have this Spain game coming up. And I want to get into the fact that I learned that I'm very, very skeptical that Germany is going to be able to pull this off. So I'm going to kind of smash a preview of the game into this thought. But what I did want to say about this particular matchup is it does remind me of 2018 in so many ways. The disappointing opening loss, the second game matchup against a good team that could create a lot of problems for Germany. And we did see that in 2018 with Sweden. And of course, Germany, I think, was very lucky to walk out of that getting the win. Uh, this Spain team, however, they present a problem. Uh, they are young, they are hungry, and they are organized. And right now, just going by how they played against Costa Rica, they're very confident. And I don't know that Germany has the same fluidity right now that Spain is playing with. I don't know if Germany's going to be able to sort out all of the problems that they have before these two teams hook up on Sunday and I am worried and I'm mostly worried because I think Hansi Flick, despite what happened in that first game is the right person for this. I think he is just having some incredible bad luck. I think he did plan. He had a lot of big plans for Timo Werner. He had a lot of big plans for Marco Royce. And I don't want to get into, you know, saying, well, if those guys were here, it would have made a difference. Even if I feel that way, it doesn't matter. Germany should still have enough talent on the pitch to be able to walk away with a win over Japan, regardless of who they're putting out there. And I guess when you look at the Oman friendly, that we should have all started to become a little bit skeptical about skeptical about what this team was going to be all about. Um, they don't look like they are as cohesive as I thought they would be the lack of energy and urgency, which I talked about extensively with I Need No Name on the post-game podcast, it's extremely disappointing that it's not there. And why it's not there, I don't know. And it's 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 something that this German team over the last five to six years has really it, it's it's a malaise that they cannot shake. When you when you would think they would start to really ramp up their efforts and their performance, they seem to just not be able to dig down and get that extra bit of drive that you would think a great team or a team with great players on it would have. And to me, like I don't, I'm starting to wonder if it's a systemic thing with the players and if this is going to be a generational thing that's going to have to pass. For Spain, they're on the opposite end. While they do have some veterans, they have a lot of exciting young players who are eager to make a mark. And when we look at Spain, you can look up and down their lineup and you're going to see very, very good players like you would with Germany. But the players, I think, that are the ones that are going to stand out or that are going to be the key against Germany 
Pedri, Gavi in the in central midfield, of course. I think with those two playing in front of Sergio Busquets, they present a lot of problems uh, with the way that they play. And I'm not sure that Germany is going to be equipped to be able to deal with them as effectively as I once thought Germany would be able to. Uh, and if you want to throw an even bigger wrench into that mix, you know, Hansi Flick is toying, at least toying, seriously or unseriously, with the idea of moving Joshua Kimmich to right back, which if it was any other game, if it was the Japan game, if it if it was anything else, Costa Rica, I would be fine. Do it. Go for it. But this particular matchup, I almost feel like you need Kimmich in the middle, and I think you do need Kimmich and Goretzka together. So whatever the case, I think that Spain has those two, Pedri and Gavi in the middle, who will present problems and will probably be able to dictate the tempo and pace of the game to Germany, and that could be a big problem. The other player with Spain who I specifically want to keep an eye on is Arbe Leipzig attacker Danny Almo, who... You know, you could look at me and you could say, well, you're just saying that because he's a Bundesliga player. Yeah, of course, I'd like to keep a special eye on him because, I, you know, I, we cover him. We we watch him over and over throughout the season. But I think Almo is a player that offers so much to Spain. And he does have that fearless attacking instinct and the, the ability to make those diagonal runs and use his quickness to quick to get by an outside back or beat a center back it's not to say that Asensio or Torres that those players can't do that because they certainly can but Almo is one that has faced many of these German players before that he's had the experience and if anything Almo could be one of the players that becomes a difference maker in this match just because he has a working idea of how to play against them I am not expecting Germany to come out as flat or apathetic as they did against Japan. I'm expecting a ramped up Germany. I'm expecting a Germany that's hyped up, that Flick has pushed, that he's going to get something out of. The problem is, in the end, and I'll make a prediction, I think it's going to be Germany to Spain to, and I think it's going to be a draw. And I, I think this is going to just really end badly for Germany because I think this team is capable of so much more than they've shown but I don't think that they're quite at the level of Spain at this point and of course with Spain that youth that they have and that exuberance can also work against them uh, when you have midfielders like Pedri and Gavi they are two players who could be flustered if you get physical with them who could be forced into mistakes if you apply pressure to them and while they're great talents, this is a big stage, and this will be a much bigger scale match for them to play in against Germany than it was against Costa Rica. And while Spain, of course, has to be considered the favorite, Germany is desperate. There is no tomorrow if they lose this match. I mean, really, there's no tomorrow if, if they have a draw either, at least in my opinion. But to me, I think that they have to find a way to keep Spain throttled down in the first half, get a quick advantage, hopefully up one nil in the first 20 to 25 minutes, try and grind them down and hope that you can get out of there with a two nil or a two, one victory. I'm saying it's going to be two, two, because I just don't think 
Germany has the capability to finish off a team right now. And I, I really, it pains me to say that because I did not think I was going to be at this stage, the second game of the group stage of the World Cup, thinking that Germany can't close out a game. And what we saw against Japan from Germany is that they absolutely cannot. You cannot, absolutely cannot allow two goals in the last 15 minutes of a match like they did against Japan, especially a match where you were so wasteful with your opportunities. And unfortunately for me, as much as I like Hansi Flick and as much as I like the players on this German team, I just don't think it's there right now. And I I am hoping like hell I'm wrong. I am hoping to be proven wrong. I do not want Germany to lose, but I also am acknowledging the fact that They've got a very difficult battle here. They are going to have to face a team that's riding high, that's super confident. And Germany right now is the exact opposite of that. So for whatever it's worth, and this is after a long day of sipping beers for me, I'm not feeling it for Germany in this match. We'll see what happens in the wake of it, whatever the circumstances may be. I mean, Germany at this point really does need a couple of upsets just in this group to really feel confident about being able to advance. But I don't think they have enough in the tank to beat Spain. I think it will be a draw. So that's kind of where we're at with all of that. Spain certainly has enough talent to take Germany down. And it would not shock me if they did. The second thing that we learned this week is Bayern Munich might be really serious about Borussia Mönchengladbach's Marcus Thuram. This is shocking to me because the report that we saw, which came from Calcio Mercado and was confirmed by Nicolo Shira, is that Bayern Munich is set to offer Marcus Thuram a 7 million euro, 7 million euro per season deal and outbid the likes of Arsenal, Chelsea, and Tottenham Hotspur. We've also seen seen Inter Milan very closely linked with Marcus Turam, but they were not mentioned in this latest report. We also seen saw from Shira's report that Bayern Munich was going to offer Turam as much as 10 million per season. Uh which I don't believe. Seven to ten, I don't I don't think. I think it would be more in line with seven and 10. But one of the crazier things is, of course, Turam is going to be a free agent next summer. But now Gladback, seeing the situation, knowing that they're not going to bring Turam back, that they are going to be willing to sell Turam for 10 million uh, in January. Now, we've also seen that Brazo, Bayern Munich sporting director, has indicated that the club will not be active in January. So where does this all feel? Where, where, what are we going to see? Byron itself, I don't think is going to make this move in January because is for as much as 10 million might seem affordable for two Ram. I, I honestly think that Byron would be willing to wait the six months or whatever and get him for free because right now they have Eric Maxim Chupo Moting. They have a variety of players they use in the attack. They're not even really sold at this point that they're going to be using uh, a one defined striker system, or if they'll go back to the four triple two, we don't know any of that at this point. And we're not even sure Bayern knows any of that at this point. So to have to pay the 10 million for two Ram and then 
if you were going to pay him a salary of seven million per season for half a year, you're going to pay three and a half mil if there are no signing bonuses included. So you're, you'd be talking about 13 and a half million for this season for two Ram. I can't see Bayern Munich spending it right now, but it would not shock me if they revisit this in the summer. And if they do ink two Ram, although I would not do it and it has nothing to do with the skill level. I think it's a little bit redundant. I think when they make their next big purchase, when they go out and they get a striker, it should be the long-term solution and not more of a patchwork kind of deal like I think Turam is. And that's not a knock on his ability. It's just I don't see him as a long-term striker at Bayern Munich. And maybe I'm wrong about that. But I don't think he's the one. Uh, even if his price is affordable, whether that means $10 million in January or free in July, doesn't really matter to me. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't take him either way. But I do think Bayern Munich is seriously kicking the tires on him. And that they will uh, really entertain uh, the thought of bringing him in, I just don't think it would be in January. Ah, the third thing we learned this week, and this one was something that really caught my eye, is that Bayern Munich might be able to expedite its pursuit of Florian Wirtz. Of course, Wirtz, the Bayer Leverkusen ace who has been injured all season as he has been rehabbing from a really catastrophic knee injury. Um, you know, obviously, it cost him most of last season, cost him the World Cup this season. Uh, it's really disappointing for such a, a, a star in, in the Bundesliga. But the problem with Wirtz and Bayer Leverkusen is that Leverkusen had in their latest contract negotiations with Wirtz, which was la- they were last season, they had indicated that they would be competitive in the Bundesliga and they would be competitive in Europe in the Champions League and that that was part of their deal with Verts is that they would maintain a team that would be able to be a consistent fixture at the top of the Bundesliga table that would be able to be a serious competitor in the Champions League. And right now, it'd be really tough to argue that Bayer Leverkusen is well-equipped to be either one of those things. Uh, sure, they have made some interesting moves in terms of manager you bring in Xavi Alonso, who I think has done a pretty good job so far. I mean, he's got a long way to go, but when you're missing your best player and and a best player that might not even be at 100% for the next year, um, it's tough. So even when Verts does come back, there's no guarantee what his impact will be. And if Xavi Alonso will be able to find a way to use him effectively in the state that he'll be in. But what was really fascinating about the report that we read was that Wirtz seems to be at some point set on playing for Bayern Munich. All the overtures have been there. We have seen this for months and months now, that Bayern has been in contact with Wirtz's father, that Wirtz at some point uh, could see himself playing with Bayern. All of those things that we've read over the, the previous months it seems like a case where there's smoke, there's fire. Right now for Verts, if he's feeling like he has no shot of being a, a, on, a, on a team that's able to compete for the Bundesliga, that's, that's able to go into the Champions League and be a serious competitor, I could see him starting to push the issue a little early. Now, it seems ridiculous because Verts just signed a pretty big deal. So... From his end, like, there's really no 
incentive, like salary wise, I can't imagine that Byron's going to really increase his salary much more than what say Bayer Leverkusen's paying now. I mean, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I, I don't know, but it, he just signed this deal, which expires in 2027. It, it's tough for me to think that he would be willing to move on just yet, even if he is frustrated at the state of the club, but just entertain the thought that this is what Verts really does want, that he wants to be in the situation where he can win a Bundesliga, where he can win the Champions League. And that's what's most important to him. And that Bayer Leverkusen, just to make this grand assumption that they are acknowledging that they're failing on this and they would be willing to talk to a club that would pay enough to let him go. What would it take to get Verts? Everything that we've seen is that he is valued at nine figures. So you have to assume that Bayer Leverkusen, even with Verts in this uncertain state of being injured, not knowing what his form will look like for any amount of time when he does come back, you have to assume they're going to want at least 100 million euros for him. On transfer mark, he is only valued at 70 million. And I say only because if he had not gotten hurt, I think that would be much closer to nine figures. But either way, he is a fantastic talent who is admired throughout Europe for his ability. Would Bayern Munich be willing to throw up that much cash in the summer for Florian Verts? Is he a player that they absolutely need to get the team better? I mean, I think if Verts can come back from his injury and he can refine that form and show that talent that we all saw glimpses of in his early Bundesliga days, would they be able to, to one, would they want to make that offer? Two, could they actually afford that offer? And three, where would he fit in the, the dynamic of this club? And particularly on the roster, I don't know. And the one thing I do know is that Bayern Munich is not scared to spend money on a talent just to acquire the talent and then figure the rest out later. But when you look at Bayern Munich's organizational depth at attacking midfielder, of course you have Thomas Muller, of course you have Jamal Musiala, you have Serge Gnabry who wants to play that position. You have Leroy Sané who has actually been pretty good at that position when called upon. Um, you have Kingsley Coman that has played in there, even though we all know he is more of a winger for sure. He's also played inside. Uh, you have Paul Vonner, who, I mean, at some point, this kid's going to have to play. So I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if Bayern Munich would really be able to, one, afford Verts at this point, and then two, really want to drop that kind of money on a player they they might not have a spot for. It's a, it sounds crazy to say that because Verts is super talented. And if he comes back in top form, you would think that there would be somewhere to play him. But Byron is loaded. They are absolutely loaded. So unless Julian Nagelsmann was going to go back to that 4 triple two, which actually would suit Verts very well, uh, there's no guarantee Byron would have a solution for Verts and, and a position for him. So right now, I don't think this is going to happen. Given how conservative Bayern Munich has been over the years with these types of situations when it comes from players outside their club, I think they're going to need to see at least a season of Verts performing at a top level, showing that he's got his, his speed and explosiveness back, showing that he can be durable, and showing that he's able to he that he was able to maintain that top flight form, which he showed before he suffered that really, really unfortunate knee injury. So I think that Bayern is always going to have Florian Verts on their radar. 
I just can't see it happening next summer because it just seems too early and it doesn't seem like anything is settled around Verts in a way that Byron would really feel comfortable uh, bringing him in and spending that much money on him. <sighs> the fourth thing that I learned this week was that Byron is going to have to have a solution for the post Luca Hernandez era here in the second half of the season. Now it's pretty, it looks pretty cut and dry, right? Because you still have three very good center back options. You have Dio Upamakano has been spectacular in the world cup. Of course, it's just been one game at the time I'm recording this, but he was really, really good in that. You have Matthias Delict, who was not good in his, in his, in his showing for the Netherlands in the World Cup. So you kind of have that. But overall, I mean, Delict had an off game. He's kind of playing a position that he's not fully comfortable with. Uh, it's a little different than his setup at Bayern Munich. But regardless, you have some very good talent with those two. And then you have Benjamin Pavar, who happens to be the starting right back. He is also able to slide in and play center back. So uh, from a center back standpoint, while missing Hernandez absolutely hurts. He He's such a fiery competitor. He brings a lot of attitude to the defense, a lot of speed to the defense, and he offers something at the center back position that you don't often see. He's not a big hulking character. He relies more on his positional, uh, his positioning, his aggression, and his vision on the field to impact games. Uh, he, one thing he is really great at is anticipating play, and whether that means making interceptions, making uh putting his putting himself in positions to make big tackles because he's anticipating uh he he's been spectacular with that throughout his tenure but without him yes it, it's a it's a weaker group but they still have three very strong uh, players for that position of course if you use Pavar centrally then you have to lean on Nusar Masrawi as a right back unfortunately Masrawi also picked up a knock during the world cup so Right now, his status is uncertain, though it does not look like anything is really all that serious that would prevent him from being ready for the start of the Rook Ronda for Bayern Munich. Once you get past those players, you have Josip Stanisic, who can play anywhere along the back line, and you have Alfonso Davies, of course, who is the starting left back. Bayern does have some prospects on campus that they could use or that they could at least look at to use for depth. But I don't think they'll go that route. I mean, I, I do think they'll probably bring someone up and have that player just sit on the bench. Honestly, I don't think that anyone's going to break into the lineup over those aforementioned players. But I don't see them going out and spending money on a backup left back, a backup right back, or even a backup center back at this point. Uh, I just don't think Byron is in the position where they want to spend. I don't think they think they need to spend. So with all of this, Byron is probably going to have to look at several ways to maximize the talent they have and then really lean on that talent to do the job. Matthias Delict is going to have to be better than he was. Now, I think he had a very good first half of the season, but it could have been a lot better. We did see some of the sloppiness we had heard about from Juventus. We did see some poor decision-making on his end in the back, especially when it comes to challenges. He did some absolutely ridiculous, unnecessary challenges that need to happen. And yeah, every once in a while, he is prone to have some uh, positioning issues, which could impact his team in a very adverse manner, to say the least. Upamakano has been really, really good. He also has, he's been shown, he has shown that he can make mistakes as well, particularly with his positioning. 
but he seems to really be working his way into a groove and really playing well of late for both club and country. So I'm a little bit less worried about him. As for Pavar, I think he's just a, a just a good versatile player who can go and I think he'll do a good job at center back when called upon. I hate losing him as a right back because I do think he is still the best right back on the roster and brings a lot to that position. He adds stability to a spot where Byron needs it. I think having two outside backs that bomb their way up the field like Davies and Mizrahi tend to do, it leaves the team exposed for those quick counterattacks. And honestly, I don't think DeLict and Upa Makano, if they're the center back tandem, I don't think they do very well handling those. And I think that's one of the, the big losses with Hernandez. As Luca Hernandez seemed less phased by having to deal with those quick counters when he was outnumbered or if he was in a 2v2 situation or whatever, he dealt with that much better than DeLict or Upa Makano have proven to do. So I hope that the two center backs there, DeLict and Upa Makano, can improve in that area, and I hope they can get better with that. But they will miss Luca Hernandez. In the end, when you look at this back line, it's not as good, it's not as deep without Luca Hernandez. And, and there is no doubt, and there's no argument about that, but it can still be very good. They still have enough depth to make things work. Now, with Josip Stanisic, I think we saw from him that he had a great summer. He did some great things playing with Croatia, including like just a hell of a performance against Kylian Mbappe. But something fell off when he came back to his club. Uh, Bayern Munich, for whatever reason, was not able to extract the best out of Josip Stanisic. And whether it was because he wasn't playing a lot, maybe he just had a drop in confidence or form, whatever the case he was not good in his appearances for Bayern Munich. I found that to be very disappointing because he is a kid that looked fairly solid prior to this year. He looked like he might be able to come in and contribute and play a role when called upon, but he has not looked good for the club this year. And, you know, I don't know how much time he's necessarily going to get with this Croatian team. I expect he'll get some here and there, but uh, he'll probably be at the point. I know he just re-upped his deal. You know, within two or three seasons, Byron's going to have to make an absolute call on what they want to do with Stanisic. Is he going to be the type of player who's going to be happy and content being a bench player, uh, maybe even a deep reserve on a team like Bayern Munich, or is he going to want to be on the pitch and, and play? And he'll have to sit down with his side, and Byron will have to sit down together in their executive room and figure that out. But as of right now, I think the go-forward plan for Bayern Munich post Luca Hernandez's injury is that things look good. Things will be tough. It's just not as good as it could have been. And I think when you start to look at that matchup against PSG, we're going to see that Bayern Munich's probably going to have a little more trouble. I think Luca Hernandez was actually very, very good against PSG when he's been matched up against them. If I'm remembering that correctly, of course, my state of memory right now is not probably all that reliable given the time I'm recording this and what I've done today. aside of all that, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be great at all times, but I do think Bayern Munich can use the current people they have on the roster and and be formidable enough to still win the Bundesliga, to still do some damage in the Champions League. I'm more interested in how these players make that step to take their games up to another level without Hernandez and seeing who can elevate themselves and who can rise to the occasion. 
Uh, I'm hoping it's everyone across that back line. It would be great to see that. It would do a lot for the team. But who knows? I mean, some players excel in these situations and others just fade away. So we'll see what happens with that. But it's very unfortunate to lose Luke Hernandez right now. But Byron, at least in this case, is well-equipped to be able to deal with it. The fifth and final thing that I learned this week, and this ties into what I call the entertainment rundown, is that I was very disappointed with the way that The Walking Dead series ended. Um, Of course, last Sunday was the series finale. And I will say a couple of things. I felt like it was very disingenuous, disingenuous to the audience who had stuck around for all of these years to use the series finale as something of a springboard for the spinoff shows. Um, There was no, to me, no real closure. They closed down a storyline that no one cared about. They didn't close down the series. They left a ton of open-ended plot lines specifically to promote these new shows, but they didn't give anyone what they really wanted. One way or the other, if they were going to end the show the way they did, They should have just killed off all the primary characters except the ones they needed for the spinoffs because there was nothing there that was interesting for a good two seasons, probably even longer. I'm probably being a little generous with that. And it does pain me to say that because while I didn't watch it right off the bat, I was pretty much in from the beginning. I think I'd gone in like a month or two late and I was able to catch up and I immediately Love the premise. I love the acting. I love the plot lines and how this was all playing out. I was just a big fan of it and I was into it and I got excited every week when the episodes would come on. I know that sounds kind of weird, but like I did, I really enjoyed the show and I looked forward to it. And even when people started to say, well, when they got to the farm, it's, it started to suck. I guess that was season two. Like now, you know, I could, I was good with all of that. I felt like that was a natural evolution to the story. As the as the seasons went on and we started to cycle through bad guys and who the, the new baddies were and all of that, it did get a little repetitive. And some of the bite that it once had was taken away. And I think part of that was not just because, the, you know, they the writers were following a baseline from the comic books, but it's the way that they treated the characters and the way they treated individual episodes – When you're so disingenuous, and I'll use that word again, with how you're writing a show that you know you have a throwaway episode with nonsense plot lines that don't matter, don't insult your audience to to try and make them think that it does. And The Walking Dead was able to do that for so many years where they would just have one or two nonsensical storylines that were forced in for no other reason than to kill time. And to me, that was always very disappointing. So when we got to these last seasons and I saw that the the storylines were not progressing and that they had lost interest, I really wasn't all that shocked. I was always hoping for the best. But when you start to lose your major characters and you don't kill them off, you know, you're leaving their storylines open-ended. I at least hoped we would have some kind of closure on some of that stuff by the end. But instead, we didn't. We got nothing. All we got was a promo show for all of their new shows, the spinoffs that would be coming out. Of course, there's the Rick and Michonne show, whatever that's called. There's the Negan. 
I can't that that the whole premise of that, even though it's killing me because I both of the characters that will be in that show. I mean, it, it, I know I'm kind of a little bit speechless on this because um, I think about the Maggie and Negan characters and all that they went through and the fact that maybe the only bit of closure that we got in the show was that they kind of came to an agreement that they couldn't necessarily like Negan could not necessarily ever apologize enough and Maggie could never really forgive him enough, but they could tolerate each other now because ultimately while they didn't have the same paths to get to where they were, they ended up in the same place. So I get that that was kind of forced upon them, those two characters to happen so they could have this spinoff, which is to me still uh, whatever. Anyway, I didn't like that they almost forced some of these endings to happen. Like, I don't know how they could take Maggie's character, who has been kind of angry, kind of a hothead, and very vengeful. How they could take that, no matter what Negan did and and all the good things he tried to do to help everyone, he still did one of the worst things in the history of the show, and of course in the history of the comics as well, uh, when he bashed in Glenn's head. (laughs) And to me, I don't think as a person or as a character in a show, you really ever get over that no matter what. So it seemed contrived and it seemed forced that they were going to have them go off on this. It seemed kind of stupid to me that all of a sudden now, like all Daryl Dixon was fighting for was to get back his community and make sure everyone was safe. And then he just rolls out, rolls out on his own and even worse. And this is Again, I don't know what the hell AMC or the writers are thinking, but they're going to take Daryl and push him over to Europe. Like, how the hell is he getting over to Europe? Is there is there a damn ferry that's going from sorry from New York to to, to England? Like, and how's he going to get to France from there? Like, I just don't understand what they're thinking. And, and to me, like, I none of this made any sense. Why are you doing this? Why are you taking your audience? And you're taking all the time they invested and you're pissing all over it. Listen, I love the Daryl Dixon character as much as anybody. I think it's just a fantastic character. His whole story from not really from not being in the comics at all to being created specifically for the show and then lasting all this time and being a complex but interesting character all along the way. I, I couldn't be a bigger fan of the character or the actor who portrayed the character Norman Reedus. It was just perfectly done even in the show's bad seasons the daryl dixon character was great and i understand that amc would want to capitalize off that but when you basically just take all of this work that he did and in a nutshell throw it all away so he can ride off on his motorcycle and somehow end up in france it makes no sense to me and again i'll use the word disingenuous because i felt like that's how the writers and the showrunners treated the audience when they went down that route. And it it does. I am very pained in saying that because I do. If you had to ask me, I would say I am a fan of the show. I did not like how it ended. I did not like how the last few seasons were handled. And, and it's very unfortunate because I do think that the walking dead at one point had so many loyal watchers, so many fans to be able to create a talk show to that follows your show because there was so much 
so much interest and so much chatter that was generated by each episode. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I just feel like AMC and the writers and showrunners, they just, they didn't realize what they had. They didn't realize where they could go with it. And they certainly didn't know how to get to the end, even if the comics kind of gave them the the cliff notes for how to get there. So uh, very disappointed in that. And I want to be very clear. I don't think that the acting was bad. I think the acting, as always, was was really good on the show. I think that the actors themselves did a fantastic job. But I think the storylines were compromised because of what the writers and showrunners needed to do for these spinoffs. And it's just very unfortunate that you would take a great series, you would take great characters, and you would take some great storylines from earlier seasons and not be able to put something together that would give the viewers a satisfying ending because to me, it wasn't satisfying. I ended up with more questions afterwards than we had solutions. And I think that that's, that's really where you get disappointed and really where you feel like you maybe didn't invest your time wisely. And that's kind of where I think I, I I really did enjoy my time watching that show. I don't know if I'll watch the spinoffs, I know some like speculation is at least one of them is a mini series. One will be a full series. I don't know how true any of that is at this point, but what I do know is I'll be very skeptical and listen, I'm the same guy that when house of the dragon came out said, I wasn't going to watch it because I was so pissed from the ending of game of Thrones, but I watched it and I enjoyed it. (laughs) Will I do that with the walking dead spinoffs. I don't know. I've tried Fear the Walking Dead. I've tried the other freaking spinoff, which is terrible. They both suck. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have it in me for the Maggie and Megan spinoff or the Daryl spinoff or Rick and Michonne. I don't know. It's going to be tough. I'm a little uh, scorned right now, so I will uh, let you know. But I I do need to really buckle down and watch Cobra Kai and Andor. I'm so far behind on that stuff. Um, life gets in the way, as I always say. So anyway, thanks for listening to me ramble a little bit there, uh, about the walking dead. Uh, as always, I appreciate that you guys tune in and listen. I do. I will say I had a blast doing the post game show with, I need no name. I always love to team up with all of the writers on staff. I don't think I've done a show with Sam or neither who I would love to hook up with. Well, that came out wrong. Who I would love to do a show with, um, with Tom, uh, always I mean, I mean, Tom and I go way back to the first episodes of this. So I, you know, all of those guys have done schnitzel. I've, I've had great shows with all of them. And I, I love being able to hook out with them, of course, for these shows, because of my recording time, I don't get often get chances to do that. Although I am working on bringing Jake back, hopefully on to this show. So we can chat a little bit about the world cup. Maybe after the group stage is over. We can chat about how things went. It would be good to get him on because, you know, I know he's a fancy daily, daily mail guy now, but uh, still has his roots here at BFW. Anyway, you can always get me at the barrel blog and get the site at Bavarian FB works. You can get our tweet Meister Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71. Get I need no name at BFW You can also get all of our great writers and podcasters on the site. Of course, we are so deep into the world cup. You're going to get coverage for all of that. And of course, Bayern Munich, the news doesn't stop there. So we're on top of all of that as well. Really do appreciate you guys listening. Enjoy the Germany-Spain match. I'm hoping for a German win. I need a German win, I think. 
But uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not super confident, but I will be rooting for one anyway. We will see you next time.